Welcome back to Son of a Preacher Man, a podcast that's all about finding beauty and brokenness, grace and grit, God and the ambiguity of the in-between. In this special episode, we hear from Jonathan and singer-songwriter William Matthews. They discuss being Christian activists and more specifically, the history and present state of voter suppression. Enjoy. So it's Saturday night and you might be doing this thing where like you're just up late and you're messing around. And oftentimes you just kind of stay up late. You can kind of feel like that's a bad, that's an unwise decision. and almost feel penalized for it. Well, tonight, you guys, if you're just up late messing around, yep. you are being rewarded right now. Very much. You are being actively rewarded by our sweet Lord baby Jesus because tonight... William Matthews is on the show, everybody. <clears throat> William Matthews. Woo! This makes me so happy. This is one of my best friends in the world. He's one of my favorite people. He's a singer. He's a songwriter. Aww. He's a co-host of The Liturgist now, yep. this season, which mm-hmm. he's doing brilliant work. He's a great thinker. He's an activist. Guys, you make me sound more important than I actually You're am. so important. You are so freaking important. You Try are me. highly important. And we're we on your feed, too. So yep. hi to William's uh, folks on IG as well. So I'm uh, so excited to join us. We've been here the last couple of days in St. Joseph, Missouri, yep. hanging out in the middle of a cornfield, basically, in talking about field. Jesus, among other things. Yep. Uh, this whole conference has been about uh, Water to Wine, which is known the title of Brian Song's great memoir. Brian, of course, being the one that convened us here. Uh, but I think it's a wonderful metaphor for what a lot of our journeys yeah. have looked like. So I wanted to talk with William about his journey. I've been dying. We... When I first started the podcast, you were—I wanted you to be one of my very first Aww. guests. We just haven't been able to do this in person. It used to be called the Jonocast. That's right. That's right. It's more, it is. It is evolved. As a lot of things are evolving. You know, it, it reminds me of that old song. Are evolving. Only one who could ever teach me was the son of a preacher man. Yes, the yes. Only one who could ever reach me hey. was the son of a preacher man. He was. Keep going. He was. Oh. Yes, he was. Remember that? Like, somebody spe- that was the that was the idea for the podcast, and somebody specifically told me that I should have you do a cover version of the song "Son of a Preacher Man." For really? This. Yeah. So okay. if you're open to it, like a solo, you gotta get version, the license though. You gotta pay for that. That, that takes money. Yeah. We don't have any money around here. That's the only thing we don't have any money. <laughs> We've got the Holy Spirit though. That's what we have in spades. So, um, how about we start here? I would love, since I want this to kind of be about our own journeys, and I feel like our journeys have uh kind of been on not just parallel tracks we've been on the same road for quite a while like could you say a little bit about just even how we connected in our story i just wanted that be good context for our friends out there relationship is always the best context so i met jonathan through twitter twitter unites the whole world does um except when it divides us and destroys (laughs) but keep going true I met jonathan on twitter I, i i just stumbled across some article i remember you wrote an article about uh, Palestinian Christians mm. and about the witness of, or, or just the alternative narrative around Israel and Palestine. Like I never heard a preacher talk about things from the side of Palestine. And mm. you wrote this article because of your experience going to Israel and getting to know Palestinian Christians, that it was more of a two-sided issue yeah. than just, you know, the, the modern church had kind of very Zionistic like lens about like, 
Israel and Israel as a nation state and being the like promised destiny of God. Mm -hmm. And so you wrote this article that that really kind of uh, debunked what I believe to be a type of uh, racial hierarchy within Christianity, where we mm -hmm. think Jewish people are better than everyone else because they're God's holy people. Yeah. When really the whole revelation was that you know all of God's people, like everyone on the earth is holy, and all of like mm -hmm. all the whole earth itself is holy, mm -hmm. not just that particular land. Um, and so I there was something inclusive about it that really rang to me. So anyway, I found you on Twitter and then I reached out to you and said, Hey, great article. And then you responded back. And I was actually planning to be in Charlotte in two weeks for yeah. something. I don't remember who or where I was going. And so you said, Hey, if you're coming to Charlotte, come lead worship at Renovatus, which mm -hmm. was a church you're pastoring there in Charlotte at the time. So then I came and that's when we, and you did out. it and you were already a big deal then. So it was pretty cool. <laughs> you come in last I night had like one or two songs community. out. That was, it. It was awesome. I thought I was the shit. Well, <laughs> and out? you are, and you, we don't need to edit. It's just true. That's okay. just true. We All right. I thought I was true. the shit, but actually, I should keep my eyes open. I forgot that we were on Instagram last night. That's so right. And my mom is, could be watching. So sorry, mom. <laughs> sorry, mom. I got a potty mouth. <laughs> But yeah, and from there forward, man, it's just been, I don't know, it just felt like one of those soul to soul kind of friendships. Yeah, absolutely. Like you recognize somebody, you feel like you've known them a lot longer than you really have. And yeah. it's just been. Yeah, yeah. I think we, because we both grew up uh, preachers like sons. Your dad was a preacher, right? Yeah, absolutely. Or, yeah. He's a preacher. Yeah, yeah he's a mm -hmm. preacher. Um, we both grew up Church of God, you out of Cleveland, me out mm -hmm. of Anderson, Indiana. Right. Uh, we were the ones that had the spirit. Yeah, yeah we, of course. <laughs> you, they did, actually. You were also, uh, I think there were just so many weird parallels that I, I found to your journey and your evolution. You called, you know, your Insta Twitter handle was Boy on the Bike, which was kind of like this revelation of, you know, you finding God and, and uh, you know, things that you love in day-to-day -day mm -hmm. life mm -hmm. in a real way, which I always believe but struggled with and so i just resonated even with that whole message mm. from prototype and yeah also i think at the at the time and still to this day you're still one of the most progressive speakers that i know from a revelatory sense not mm. like a ideological political theological sense but like from fun. a real like spirit breathe uh thing so i made a decision mm. y'all five years ago six years ago i said everyone needs to know about jonathan martin so i made a conscious decision to retweet you at every every time I saw something you said that was even remotely interesting or revelatory, I said I'm going to retweet it. You probably remember, I probably That's retweeted really you consistently for years and then true. promoted That's your true. sermons. That's very kind. I did it. I was like, yeah. I was doing it when no one knew who you were, and they were like, Why are you keep like retweeting this guy? And I was uh -huh. like, People need to hear it, and I will leverage whatever little platform I have to get that word out. So it made me really happy so when good. I started seeing a lot of my like friends start following you on Instagram, Twitter and stuff and retweeting you. And cause that was my whole goal. I was like, I just mm. want this guy to be known as much as I can help make him known. And now you like far succeed me. So, Oh, well, that's, that's not true happening. at all, but that's, that's incredibly generous. And I think, you know, it's, uh, it does feel like there's just been this, you know, a sense of being cut from the same cloth. And I still believe in you and your music oh, and your gift you. and this. And I think there's such a, there's such a prophetic thing on you in terms of, um, I feel like there's always been something in you musically. And now the more that you're even separate of the liturgist that just, that just sets people free. I mean, God is a liberator, the God of the Exodus. And, yeah. um, and I, I really, I wanted to talk specifically on this, uh, on, on this podcast about this, just this journey that you've been on because, yeah. and, and I actually like the idea because this happens in good storytelling sometimes kind of starting in the middle because, you know, you had, 
what I would describe as a fairly meteoric rise in terms of just, you know, what you were doing in terms of worship music. And, you know, you've written songs that people literally sing all over the world. And as that platform continues to grow, and we both, I think, in our own way, we could say like, you know, had a certain sort of upward mobility within within our own path. Yeah, yeah. You became an author and like, yeah everything started taking off for both of us. Yeah. So it's like, but, but at the same time, there, there's also been this way in which then we've been on this spirit led journey Yep. that I think it would be fair to say, uh, you know, in, in, in a form, we're still doing what we used to do, but it's also taking us on some kind of twist and turns. Yeah. So I did, so let me ask it like this, especially as you're starting to find real success, you're hitting your stride, God's using you, and the platform's growing, and you know clearly it's 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 good work. It's edifying. What what was the restlessness that you first experienced in that world where yeah. dreams are being fulfilled, and yet there's something in you that's not totally quite satiated? Yeah, in the right way? Uh, yeah. So I think there's this rest. The restlessness grew from an actual hunger for God. Mm. You right? Like I I was in all sorts of movements in in my life, but particularly uh, movements that emphasize hungering and thirsting after God and wanting more of this presence of the spirit. So I remember going to altar calls and, and, and praying and, you know, feeling the the presence of God and in the, in the ministry time and the worship and either falling over, laying out, soaking and doing all that stuff. But there reached a point where it no longer worked. Mm. And I would go up for the altar call and the prayer and the tingles didn't come and the revelatory insight didn't come, the visions didn't come, the trance didn't come, and the the things that I experienced and felt like should be coming weren't. And so it made me even more hungry. So I'm like, I yeah. need to hunger after God more. Maybe God's doing something different. So I began to hunger after God and, and looking for this experiential thing, when in reality, what actually began to fill my hunger was a an actual tangible, like knowing in my intellect mm. and a seeing with my eyes. Like I I, I felt like the emotional side had been so emphasized that I begin to uh, neglect um, knowing God in my mind. So it says, mm-hmm. you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So I felt like I loved him with my heart, but I didn't love him with my mind. Mm-hmm. And I didn't love him with my strength. Wow. And so I began to crave like intellectual stimulation, not from a vain, like, uh, uh, I, idolatrous like thing as much as a, I actually want to understand God with my mind. Yeah. I actually have a lot of questions. I even have some doubts that I'm afraid to talk about. And, and maybe in the places where I'm afraid, like I'm looking for God in the altar call to like, give me the tingles and the tingles aren't working anymore. Maybe I'm, I'm meant to find him uh, in a deeper revelation of scripture, a deeper mm. revelation of uh, the heart journey. So I, I just begin to look every time I've, I've always had this sense of hunger with God where when I felt stuck, I always knew he was out there. So I yeah. could search. Like it's the Song of Solomon journey where, you know, like, uh, you, where's my beloved? You know, like, yeah. can you find him? Tell me if you see him, tell him I'm lovesick, right? Mm-hmm. So I go on the journey and that's how I found your stuff. And I, mm-hmm. I found, you know, uh, like Greg Boyd was also in that season too. Yeah. I, I discovered Greg Boyd and his his literature that really uh, I began to wrestle with some of my questions about the nature of God, the character of God in a in a deeper way, like if I'm going to still do this Christian thing or be a worship leader, it needs to be real and it needs to be substantive and I need to believe it. Otherwise, what am I actually doing? Mm. And I've never really worked well with faking it. So I yeah. always have to like believe it and actually receive it. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So 
for me, hungering God in the revival sense, in the more of you, Lord, sense led me on an intellectual journey that brought me to a lot of your teachings about beauty. I remember you preached a sermon about anytime you find beauty, you follow beauty back to its original source, yeah. you find God. Yeah. And you begin to preach these sermons that to me reflected the artist in me. Hmm. And I think wow. that was also what was emerging was I was really good at being in ministry and a worship leader, but I wasn't good at owning my authenticity and owning uh, my skill as an artist. I was good with yeah. being a compliant ministry person, but I wasn't good at being a, a someone that lived and breathed and, and owned their identity and owned their authenticity and owned hmm. their power, which to be an artist, you have to do all those things. Yeah. Um, so then I really began, and you referred me to Brian Zahn's work, Beauty Will Save sure. the World. Uh, actually accidentally bought the wrong book. I bought Beauty Will Save the World by Gregory Wolf. Oh, really? That's hilarious. I didn't know this. Yeah, I read that book uh -huh. first, which is actually brilliant. Okay, have good. You read the Gregory Wolf I have book? not. It is actually really good. It's okay. actually, a, he's a, he's a, I think he's Catholic or English. He, he actually had a whole nother take on the subject. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> but it was so actually check this one out really good. That's Gregory fantastic. Wolf, Beauty Will Save the World. And I was like, oh, wait, I need the Brian Zahn one. And I found Beauty Will Save the World. Uh, and, and, and it really connected for me, the, the desire for worship, which mm. for me being in the church for so long, my mother was a, a choir director. My dad was a pastor mm. and the, I love music and worship. And that's what made me want to become a worship leader, um, which really is just want a desire for beauty and awe and wonder. Yes. And yes. so I began to connect the deepest desires of me to the deepest desires of God and realizing that that was not just some like, again, tangible revival, experiential layout on the floor, you yeah. know, cry and moan and have trances and visions and signs and wonders. But it was actually a intimate knowing in the journey of the soul, as well as the intellect about mm. re transforming my mind. Um, so is it fair to say there was a tension between like the stirring you felt in your soul and the theological construct you had up here? Absolutely. Mm. There was, and there was, there was, um, I, I had really wrestled with a lot of the, uh, violent portrayals of God in the text, as well as um, in sermons. And I had even distanced myself from a lot of the prophetic language around the judgment of God, you know, being a, the, the type of temporal judgment where God is judging California yeah, for their sins. Sure. In my adult life, I had gone and been, been a part of a lot of prophetic type streams and movements that were emphasizing uh, the judgment of God to me in a, in a very wrong way. But at the mm. time, like buying in because these people know more than I do. So I just mm. got it's right. Like, I, They've got to be seeing something I'm not seeing. Hmm. So intuitively knowing that's wrong, I begin to reach out for other ways of seeing and describing. And so you were very helpful in that process for me. Hmm. Greg Boyd was very helpful in that process. Um, theologically of, of finding a new script and a new narrative hmm. that actually aligned with what I felt on the deepest parts of me that wow. didn't make sense in modern church culture. Wow. I love that. What do you do when like, though, that journey, especially when you do feel like it's a spirit led journey and you're, you know, you're trying to be, keep a heart that's humble and tender and teachable and all that, but you feel as best as you can, you're, you know, you're, you're following the wind, you know, and I love that language of Jesus. You know, mm -hmm. spirit is like the wind, where it's come from, where it's going, we're doing the best you can. And then like people who are around you, who have been on the journey with you thus far, because I've certainly had the experience all of a sudden don't understand exactly what you're doing or where you're going and you start to be misunderstood. Cause I know like I desperately want to be understood. And I feel like there's just, there are so many mm -hmm. folks out there right now are in that kind of place where, you know, they feel like they're on a spirit led journey, but you know, they're, they care about the communities where they come from. And you know, like what, what, like what, what do you do with that? When, you know, when, what, 
this interior sense of what God is saying to you starts to kind of come into conflict with the expectations that people have on, you know, who you've been so far. And especially when there's some folks who legitimately have been helpful on the, on the journey thus far. Well, you know, I begin to reach out while I'm in this process. I begin to reach out to lots of different people to, because when God is doing something new inside of you, Mm. you, you think other people are going to see it too. And they don't always see it or feel it because they're in their own journeys and God is dealing with them in different ways. And, and they're seeing something different or they're maybe unwilling to challenge and think about things <laughs> in a new yeah. way. So I faced all of that. I faced people mm-hmm. who were in a different season or people who refused to even entertain a new thought. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that God would be speaking through me and, and vice versa. Um, I think ultimately in the moment, it doesn't feel great, but you have mm-hmm. to give grace because at one point, moment in time you were a stranger you were a pilgrim you were you were new in the land and so when god is showing you something new you know the worst thing we can do in the pride of our heart is to um how come everyone else is not seeing this well right and to like land like and to harp on that and i and again doesn't mean that there isn't a place to critique but um i often think using the revelation and the things the insights and the understanding and the intellectual breakthroughs we're having um, as a way to create another and to yeah. create a uh, better than situation. Like yeah. I'm better than you because I'm, I'm listening more to God than you mm-hmm. are. I'm more mm-hmm. prophetic than you. I'm more intuitive than you. Mm. Um, and even if that's the case, it doesn't, it's not helpful on any level. Right. So um, in the time I wrestled, I accused people. <laughs> I, I realized some people weren't seeing what I was, I actually realized at some level, there were people in my circle in my tribe that weren't seeing what I was seeing. So I had to actually wrestle with, am I hearing God correctly or am I, am I off? Yeah. And ultimately what I realized, what I noticed was, was, why is it that everyone in my inner circle is not at all like vibing with anything I'm saying? Hmm. But when I talk to people outside of my circle, whether it's you and other people that don't aren't even connected to you and related to you and they're feeling and sensing the same thing yeah it actually made me realize maybe i'm living in a bubble wow okay maybe the bubble that i'm living in is protecting me from revelation Hmm. and trying to keep me in the same place than it is progressing me in god and so um when i saw i saw such a stark dichotomy between everyone in my bubble is or i would say 98 percent because there's always a remnant Mm -hmm. Uh, there were a few people actually that felt and saw this similar things, but they were so rare. Um, everyone in my bubble's not seeing it. Yeah. Practically everyone outside my bubble is seeing it. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. I, that's so, when I realized I well, had to get up. You think about like, um, uh, this came to mind in Romans 8 when it talks about how the creation itself is groaning for the manifestations of the sons and daughters of God and, you know, the restoration is yet to come. There is this groaning and sighing of the creation. And I think sometimes ironically, those of us who have been kind of inside these institutional spaces for too long actually are kind of out of synchronicity with the the longing of creation that is very much a, a spirit kind of groaning and sighing. But we're in communities where maybe because it's untidy, there's not space for that sighing and groaning that can no. feel like lament it can be disruptive but there actually can be people kind of outside the walls of the institution yeah. who are feeling that um so not to cut too far ahead but i but i i do want to talk to you about this because i know like okay so all this for you 
Okay, keep in mind, having the privilege to know William the way that I do and the kind of friendship that we have and things we've experienced, I, I consider you to be not just in your songwriting, because of course you're right, Matthew, that's one sort of expression of a prophetic gift. Mm-hmm. But I find you to be extremely intuitive and extremely prophetic in terms of like, you know, I just know that you come from that kind of mystical spirit-led place where you're very sensitive to the voice of God and trying to be used by God in that way and just very open. I find it interesting now that in your own kind of water to wine journey, that the more and more that you've gotten involved in, well, in, in politics and in policy. And I know that that isn't native to you anymore than it was like native to, to me. That's not where we came from exactly. Mm-hmm. At least, you know, in terms of like church culture stuff. So I'd love for you to say a little bit about what that journey has looked like, mm-hmm. how it is that while on the spirit led journey of uh, that was really, you know, at first more just about kind of a becoming in God and it was very spiritual. It was about that. And you mentioned my boy on the bike thing, that kind of like identity is God's beloved. How did that begin to evolve and push you Mm. to start to engage the world more on that level? What was, what was that turn? Well, such a big, um, such a big question because. So I'll start with the body. Mm. being a Christian in America, we often feel disembodied. Mm. We disembody ourselves. Our religion disembodies us, meaning we teach separateness that I am separate from God. I'm separate from everything else. Mm. And, uh, you know, my soul is separate from my body. Yeah. And I actually, the more, just as I grew and and did actual healing work of integration, mind, matter, body, soul, spirit, I began to realize the very things I was running from, the shadow side of myself, mm-hmm. the parts that I thought were so sinful and wicked, when I actually faced them, saw them for what they are, accepted them, mm-hmm. I began to be embodied. Mm-hmm. And I began to, but by that, what I mean is I began to come back to myself. John mm-hmm. Mayer has this line where he says, uh, um, know your fight is not with them. Yours is with your time here. Dream your dreams, but don't pretend. Make friends with what you are. Hmm. And the more I begin to make friends with what I, of who, with who I am, yeah. uh, and the parts of me that I don't like and begin to accept them before I could ever decide to change them, hmm. um, I begin to settle into myself and I stopped abstracting myself outside of myself and I started seeing myself and realizing that it's all connected. Yeah. The self is connected to the journey of God. Like yeah. to see myself is to see God, to see God is to see myself mm. that I couldn't, you know, it says, what can separate you from the love of Christ? No yeah. breath, no length, no width, nor height. I know Brad Jerzak talks about that too recently on your podcast. Yeah. Uh, and I begin to realize like, I can't, when I go, I live in LA. Like when I'm, when I go to the Pacific ocean, I can't separate the salt from the water. I begin to use that as an analogy to see that was me in Christ. Like yeah. nothing can separate me from his love that actually, even in my sin, my, my pride, my wickedness, whatever that is, mm. <laughs> my shadow, my, like, I, I'm okay. I'm yeah. all right. Yeah. And I, before I can ever change anything, I have to accept that. So when I started accepting myself right exactly where I was, mm. no matter what was going on, um, I begin to realize the real power in that. And to me, that hearkened to (sighs) Cornel West says, justice is what love looks like in public. Yeah. Love that quote. Justice is what love looks like in public. Mm -hmm. 
So for me, the more I begin to love and own myself, the more I begin to realize everyone else was loved, everyone else was holy, everyone else was accepted. And if they're accepted and they're in the beloved and they're in Christ, how are we dehumanizing them? Mm. How are we participating in the the dehumanization? Are we complicit in it? Mm. And, And how do we use our freedom for this, you've been set free, right? Like Christ has set you for freedom. You've been set free. Yeah. Are we, I've realized as a Christian, I was using my freedom to police other mm. people versus using my freedom to accept, nurture, and love people. I have been participating in dehumanization in public policy. Wow. I have been participating in othering people as if like they don't have God, I do. So therefore I know what's best for them. Mm-hmm. So I'm setting myself up in a position of judgment of them. Mm-hmm. So when I when I really begin to connect how um, my disembodied reality had been setting itself up as judgment over people, and the mm-hmm. more I got into my body, the more I realized that other people were holy and sacred. Yeah. And that I should be using my power to advocate for the least of these and the marginalized and recognizing that Christ is at work in all things and all people, Second uh, Corinthians 5 says, Christ is at work reconciling the world to himself by not counting men's trespasses against them, yes. but by offering to us, right, the ministry of reconciliation, yes. which to be reconciled, you have to first be reconciled. That's right. So then there had to be this reckoning theologically with me was, was, that, was I ever at one with God? Mm. Maybe I actually was at one with God and mm. somehow sin was the lie that I wasn't. Sin was the lie of separateness. Sin was the thing that told me I was not connected to God. I was not connected to creation. I was not connected in my own body, that I was separate from my own body. Mm. And if I believe I'm separate, then I'll I'll commit all sorts of egregious, violent acts against myself and other people. But if I see myself as one, then I can't, like my brother is me. I, you know, the question Jesus, excuse me, God asked, Cain, after he slaughtered Abel, he's like, "Where are you, your brother? Where is, are you, your brother's keeper?" That yeah. was the question he asked, right? And the asks, answer is, "No, actually, you're not your brother's keeper. You are your brother." Mm-hmm. And when I realized the commonality that I shared with all humanity—not just my Christian brethren, but also all humanity—I mm. um, was able to start advocating for the least of these in a way that was truthful because I had accepted the worst parts of myself and knew that I was loved in that. Yes. And then I could start accepting the worst of other humans and know that they were okay too. And that the work that I was called to do was to reconcile and to bring humanity and dignity back to all of God's creation Mm. and to remember the dismembered body of Christ. Oh, that's crucial, man. That's so good. I know this is a long answer. No, it's so good. I mean, this is important. I feel like you're connecting all the dots. And I think like it's Mm. uh, because I think it's important too, especially for people for whom because I think a lot of us come from cultures where these things are so dichotomized, like, and it, people will think, Oh, you were a spiritual person who cared about the things of God and and the things of the spirit. (laughs) But now you've moved into carnality. And it's like, I joke with you, like about the whole, like, we want the old Kanye. Like, we want, we <laughs> we want, want the, the old, old William Matthews. Matthews. <laughs> the one that was singing the worship songs we That's liked. right. That's right. That was- I want to get into what you're doing specifically right now in North Carolina, but I feel like there might be one more bridge question here. Okay. And I, I always, I hope I don't even ask this in an awkward way, but like, 
where where in the midst of all this because clearly you were growing in your understanding of what it means to be god's beloved son and your like identity within the kingdom but where in the midst of all this kind of settling because i love you when you're that's what you talked about in terms of come to understand that your soul fundamentally does exist in union not disunion with god all these yeah. things I feel like are so, and your body and your body your body right uh, beautifully and wonderfully made, right? The temple and of God. God, create, God created and said, "This is good," and mm-hmm. delights and all that stuff. Where, where does, where does your blackness fit into this? Oh yeah. So okay, I, I had to realize instead of running away from my particularity, mm-hmm. this is where the integration of, of of work comes in and and joining the shadow, yeah, and, and accepting the shadow part of you where you actually have to realize that my particularity, my uniqueness is what God loves. Yeah. That God loves me in my uniqueness and my cultural particularity and right. my gender particularity, racial particularity. Like mm. he loves me in that space. And there is something that I can experience of God's love in, in, in who I am. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean that everything, my culture or my ethnicity or my gender or my sexual, uh, doesn't mean that everything uh, connected to my identity, whatever form of identity I ascribe to or connect to, doesn't mean that everything is exactly as it should be or yeah. right or perfect or holy. or what, yeah. like, Excuse me, it means it's holy, but it doesn't mean that everything is uh, perfect. Yeah. And so I, I, I had to kind of like realize that with the culture came that God was embedded in the culture. Mm. God was embedded in my particularity. He was embedded in my ethnicity. And there was a revelation of God even within my own ethnicity. Now, Mm. in the American context, when it comes to, like you said, blackness, I realized that I remember, excuse me, that's a better word. I remembered Mm. that I was part of a history and a legacy and a lineage that was bigger than me. I didn't show up in a glad bag from heaven. (laughs) I came through a line and a lineage. Like, so right when you read the New Testament, they're like, so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so, right? And then you get David. And then so-and-so begat so-and-so. And and then they had Mary. And then Mary had Jesus, Mm. right? Like that that legacy mattered, that cultural inheritance mattered. So I begin to realize that that the cultural inheritance is right where Christ is born in each and every one of us. Mm. And and in our American context, I realized I, I came from a lineage of uh, people who weren't perfect, but people who who were plundered, people yeah. who were stolen from, people who were murdered, maimed, killed, raped, mm. lynched. And I had to like reckon with the pain of that, face mm. the pain of that, come to grips with that violent history that, that we were ripped from a continent and brought and robbed of our, like I just learned recently that even the hair, when African slaves were brought over to the new world, that their hair represented their, their culture and their class mm-hmm. and that they made them all cut their hair, wow. which robbed them of their cultural identity. And that you couldn't tell one slave from another where they were wow. from because yeah. And so I had to realize that I came from a plundered people. Mm. There's a pain in that, there's also a resilience in that. Yeah. I come from a people who, who were given a religion that wasn't native to them, yet they found liberation and freedom through it. Mm. And they begin to use the text that oppressed them as a means to free them. Yeah. Wow. And that 
resiliency, I, even predating slavery, right? I can mm. look back to, you know, the kings and queens of Africa, though I, I claim no direct lineage to that. I can look from there, but then also look at the last several hundred years of American history. There's a pain in that, but there's also a beauty in it, and there's yes. a resiliency, and there is a, um, there's a love there. Yeah. So I had to learn to love my, when I loved myself, I could love where I came from mm. and I could own the pain of where I came from, but I could also own the hope of it. Mm. So my blackness fits in because I am proud to be black. Cause in that particularity, particularly in the African-American narrative, being a, an oppressed people, I can actually enter into the universality of all things. I can actually relate to the common man. Yeah. I can relate to everyone Yeah, because I know what it feels like to be on the underside. Mm. I, just before I ask a follow-up question, I, I just it's just an observation that I'm just thinking, and I don't know if this translates for people who will just be listening by audio on the podcast, but it's so clear, even as you're talking about this with your eyes closed, it's like, it feels like a sense of remembering, like all this just comes from a deep place. These are things that you've been internalizing in your soul for a long time, and I love that. I love mm-hmm. just, I, I, it has been such a soulless journey. It's a spirit-led journey. So as you, um, to carry the story a little bit further, kind of your, again, your own context of your own sort of water to wine experience. So as you become more aware of your own identity, more grounded in it, more at home in your own skin in all categories. Um, okay. So to, to bring it into this, now, uh, William is in the, the midst of a fight that I think is a sacred fight. I think it's, mm. um, I feel like it's, it's, it's not just good work. I feel like it's, it's kingdom work. Uh, but also, I, I, you know, especially considering where we come from, I can see where a lot of people would, uh, would kind of not know what to, what to do with this because it's not, I don't know, especially for those of us who are socialized to only think about a handful of issues or, you know, kind of, you know, cultural things that we felt like were important to sort of engage our faith with. But in, in my native state of North Carolina, which I deeply love, you've been in, I mean, you've been in the midst of, of a real battle. Let me quit babbling. And why don't you tell us a little bit about that? What's happening in North Carolina? (coughs) How did it get on your radar? Okay. So I come from a family that fled the South because of the of the threat of racial terror as it related to voter suppression. You got to know that after the Civil War era era and the Reconstruction era, Blacks were given some measure and level of political power. It scared white people so bad that they began to strip Black people of political power Mm. in the beginning part of the 20th century. Mm. To the point where basically, even though it was legal for Black people to vote, they were ineffectively not allowed and privileged to vote. So... Um, It wasn't until, again, the Voting Rights Act in 1964 was kind of where you know who Martin Luther King is and the whole narrative around that, that, um, you know, blacks were given women first and then blacks were given, you know, the the right to vote. But obviously before that, again, I come from a family who fled the South. Mind Mm -hmm. you, everyone fled the South. People moved to the West Coast. Some people moved up to the Midwest. Some people moved to the Northeast. But black people, there was a great migration that happened. I I can't tell you exactly what time period. It was like a 10-year period where blacks fled the South and moved to the North. Mm -hmm. So I ended up in the North through my family lineage and then eventually made my way back to the South. (laughs) My dad took a pastor to North Carolina. So when I was 10 years old, I moved to Raleigh, North Carolina and came face-to-face with the Confederacy. Mm. And 
even as a kid, I, I was treated differently because not only was I black, but I was from the North mm. and there was a sentiment of like you Yankee. I didn't even wow. really know that understand that term till I moved to North Carolina. Mm. I was called a Yank. Wow. And it was this notion of you're from somewhere else. You're coming here to tell us, you know, what's right and what's wrong. So fast forward, um, North Carolina has uh, been a state that has struggled with being progressive, meaning ensuring that all its citizens have rights. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And voter suppression is a long issue coming from the post-Civil War era. So recently what began to happen is after the election of Barack Obama, um, we begin to see state legislatures, Republican-led state legislatures across America begin to change districts and zones, gerrymander them, which basically means I'm going to draw this map in such a way that it favors Republicans to win versus Democrats, right? So that's gerrymandering. What we're also going to do is then we're going to change voter laws, Hmm. not let the public know or cut early voting and make it difficult for people to vote. What does that mean? Here's a way. In 2013, the North Carolina legislature, this is one example, but many states have done this, have created um actual voter id laws now mm-hmm. what those are is they use the rationale of thinking we want to maintain a safe and free election so therefore we're going to require that people who vote to show up to vote at a polling place provide a government issue photo id yeah sounds common sense yeah. sounds normal sounds yeah that's right why don't we have ids here's the thing you don't have to have a government issue id to be a citizen mm. And your right to vote as a citizen is a constitutional right. It is not dependent on whether you have a certain form of identification. Mm. There are many forms of identification that you can show to prove who you are. But to require a government issue ID proves that these legislatures were looking at certain segments of the population that are less likely to carry those IDs. Mm -hmm. How do we know? Because in in 2016, Federal courts looked at these voter ID laws in North Carolina, and what they found was that the North Carolina legislature was using the voting patterns and history of minorities, Black and Latino people. They were looking up the information to see how they voted, when they voted, by what measures do they vote, and then they began to craft laws that targeted Black and Brown people with surgical precision. That's That's their language of the court. That is the court. The court found racially discriminatory intent and practice which is really hard to prove and the fact there was such a consensus in the courts on that is a really big statement very consent the supreme court refused to hear it as well too as a reinforcement of the federal court's ruling there this happened this is happening in wisconsin and in texas these were happening in states and these were judges that were that were all over the spectrum it wasn't like like left-leaning judges these were judges uh, on the bench that were of all different political persuasions, but were coming to the realization that Republican legislatures on the state level were crafting these voter ID laws mm-hmm. in order to disenfranchise people of color who tend l- to have government issue IDs less. Mm-hmm. And how and do we know that the intent was there? The intent was there, again, because they were looking up the voting records and patterns. It had been studied. It had been studied. They'd go to the DMV and say, we want this information. Mm-hmm. So the federal courts were looking at that. Also, here's the truth. Voter fraud in this country is not a problem. Mm. That the federal courts actually brought up that North Carolina had next to zero prosecutions, one to zero prosecutions of actual voter fraud. Mm. So it wasn't like there was this rampant voter fraud. Therefore, now we need to issue IDs in order to protect our democratic process. There was there is 
little to no voter fraud because it's actually easy to figure out. Mm -hmm. And the cases where there are like voter fraud, it's almost always accident, accidental. Yeah. Yeah. And they're able to rectify that really quick. So what people don't understand is the Republican legislatures created a myth. They created a crisis, which is what we're seeing right now politically that Trump does. Mm -hmm. Let me create a crisis. Let me tell you that that people crossing the border is higher than normal. Let mm -hmm. me tell you there's a crisis. Yeah. And then you know what? Let me propose a problem or a solution to fix the crisis. We need to prosecute everyone coming across the mm -hmm. border. Well, to prosecute everyone, that means we got to separate families. Yeah. That means we got to. And next thing you know, you know, let me hire my friends who run prisons to build camps for these people that we have to prosecute by following the law. Yeah. That's the con. That's the long game. Federal mm -hmm. courts ruled that North Carolina was engaging in discriminatory intent and practice, struck down the law. Fast forward to 2018. They're doing it again. They just passed in the Senate the other day a constitutional amendment. They couldn't get away with doing it by passing just a regular law. So they went around that now two years later, same legislature. And they basically offered it as a constitutional amendment mm. in the North Carolina state constitution to require voter ID and they cut early voting again, which wow. disproportionately African-Americans and Latino people use early voting mm. because they can't often at times – as working poor people get off on voting days. So they yeah. utilize weekends and early voting. And black churches utilize Sunday voting as a major uh, uh, form of voting. One more thing before I finish. No, it's good. Um, you ask people like, well, why don't they just get an ID? Well, oftentimes to get an ID, it is expensive. Um, you don't have every form of uh, uh, identification to, to get that particular ID. Yeah. And often the people that are being disenfranchised are, are elderly black and disabled. Wow. So if you've ever done ministry, like my dad was a pastor in Raleigh in particular, where they're passing these laws and there are lots of elderly black people that have a constitutional right. They're eligible voters to vote. They have a form of ID, but it's not a government ID. Mm -hmm. And now they're being told that they're going to be told this coming November, uh, they can't vote mm -hmm. because they don't have this certain form of ID. Yeah. One more thing. If the North Carolina legislature was actually concerned about free and fair elections that without fraud, hmm. they would require absentee voters to issue, to uh, present an ID. And they don't. And they don't. And absentee yeah. voters are mostly used by white voters. Yeah, that's so fascinating. And I think, and I just think can't be stressed enough again, because I know some people, because that's the message they've heard, but what about voter fraud? This is statistically, that just doesn't bear out. It doesn't bear out. It's not a national problem. It's not a state level problem. Again, the federal courts raised to North Carolina. If this is what you're saying, I sat in the North Carolina galley last week where the Republican legislature was arguing the case about voter fraud. Mm. They could not bring forth real substantive evidence of actual voter fraud. You know what they mm. kept saying? I was in the line and that person seemed illegal. And I felt like literally I'm listening to Republican Senator after Republican, excuse me, Republican representative, because yeah. it was in the house when I saw it, uh, Republican representative after Republican representative arguing anecdotal evidence mm -hmm. based on nothing more than pure intuition and feeling of like, that seems wrong to me. Yeah, That was it. They weren't like, hey, here's all these substantive cases that have been borne out or that like are actual. And they were then yelling, we know it's wrong. You know you've seen it. Yeah. Well, where's the proof of it? You can't prove it. And and it's the fear. It's the fear mm -hmm. that immigrants are voting. It's the yeah. fear that black and brown people that shouldn't be voting are voting. Yeah. That is driving these racist laws. And they are racist in their intent and they're racist in their impact. Point blank.
know that a lot of people who follow us are people of faith, and I know that this is a message I think is bigger. But specifically speaking to our folks for whom faith is important, why do you think it matters that people of faith, regardless of their political persuasion or party affiliation, engage this issue? Because voter suppression is not a partisan issue. Voter suppression is a moral issue. It is about whether or not eligible citizens can actually execute their constitutional right to Mm -hmm. vote. Here's the thing. This country has a long history of suppressing and blocking and hindering and obstructing and making it more difficult for black and brown people to vote. Point blank. You can't argue with the history. I don't care who taught you what. Go read a book somewhere. (laughs) It's just true. Again, like black and brown people fled the South in massive migration numbers Mm -hmm. because of the fear of racial violence. And much of that racial violence was connected to you better not show up and vote. Mm-hmm. Because if you show up and vote, you actually have political power mm-hmm. to reinforce your beliefs, which yeah. in that, which for all of us is the the, the anti-racist belief, like right. that right. black people are not inferior to white people. Yeah. Which in the post-civil rights or post-civil war era into Reconstruction, uh, into civil rights and into mass incarceration, the mm-hmm. fundamental idea of racism is white superiority, black inferiority. Yeah. That's it. So mm-hmm. as Christians, as anti Christians should be abolitionist and anti-racist. Mm-hmm. Christians should be abolitionist and anti-racist. And they should be advocating for the full humanity of black and brown people yeah. and their constitutional right to vote. Yeah. And if you don't do that, you are complicit in the racist white supremacist state mm-hmm. that is seeking to disenfranchise the voice, disproportionately so, the voices of black and brown people. Sure. Does it affect white people voting? Yes, but not on the same level that it affects black people voting. And they know that. Yeah. Yeah. They know that. So for you, this is not a partisan issue. It is not partisan. I am a registered Democrat at this point in my life, but you know what? I spent 10 years voting Republican. So I have, I I got range y'all. Some of y'all ain't even voted out of your party for the majority of your life. So I got range. Some of y'all don't even got like two notes. You've only done one thing your whole life. I've got range. I voted for many candidates across many aisles, though I'm currently a registered Democrat and I'm proud of that and a progressive. I I have voted in many different ways and for many different people across political spectrums. You have not even done so, so don't even at me. (laughs) I love that. No qualms about like letting you know you don't have range. I do. So don't come for me. What, um, so what made you, want to engage this issue in North Carolina in particular. Imagine this. Imagine you're not racist and you craft, you're a legislator and you craft a bill that disproportionately impacts people of color, citizens of your own state that you're Mm. called to advocate for. What would you do if you're not racist? Mm. You would apologize. Sure. You would say, I am sorry. I did not mean for this law to impact you this way. Let's find a better way to secure free and fair elections Mm -hmm. while not disenfranchising people of color and making it easy for people to vote while being uh, fair and accurate with who's actually voting, right? Like that would be, if you were not a racist, that would be, oh my God, Mm -hmm. I am so sorry. But the problem that we have seen with the North Carolina legislature is if, if you were convicted there would be contrition yeah if you actually felt like it was wrong you would be showing signs excuse me here's a better way of saying it if racism wasn't the intention Mm -hmm. then you would show contrition Mm -hmm. absolutely 
And I watched as these legislatures showed no signs of contrition, no signs of repentance. In fact, they argued with the federal courts and said the federal courts misrepresented what they were actually trying to do. When the evidence bore out, misrepresents that. So we found out North Carolina was doing it again. Mm. They were doing it again. Mm. So I started a campaign, rejectracism.org, and we began to alert the public to what was going on. Also, not just alert the public, I started a petition, it got 40,000 signatures, and I wanted- How did you do that? How did you get to 40? That's a lot of signatures. So yeah, it was. I I partnered with Color of Change, which is the largest online social justice advocacy site, Mm. to start this petition, and you use my platform and their platform to get the word out. Yo, we got retweets from like celebrities like Rhett and Link, as well as Sarah Silverman, the comedian, um, lots of people, Angela Johnson. We had like lots of people in Hollywood got behind it. Um, but we we begin to let these people know that Apple and Amazon are looking to move their headquarters to Raleigh, North Carolina, potentially. Mm-hmm. And we want Apple and Amazon to consider Raleigh, North Carolina, but what we don't want is Apple and Amazon to be complicit in voter suppression and 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 the blocking and the dis disproportionately suppressing the vote of people of color. So we want to put pressure on Apple and Amazon. And that's why we started the petition to say, hey, if you move to this state, you need to pressure the the North Carolina legislature. Why? Because we live in an oligarchic state, guys. I don't know. We don't don't want to talk about that. Mm. But corporations have more sway over our public officials than actual people. Wow. So in this day and age, the only way to actually change a law in North Carolina, for instance, right? You remember the the bathroom bill that happened? And the only way that that began to be changed was because uh, uh, sports organizations began to put pressure on the legislature to change. And when we saw that, we knew these people are so corrupt, they're not willing to listen to the will of the people that they represent, but they're Mm -hmm. willing to listen to money. So we can put pressure on Apple and Amazon to do the right thing, to hold to their values of inclusion Mm -hmm. and diversity and to protect the rights of all their employees, then we can actually... Uh, get them to put pressure on the North Carolina legislator to do the right thing and to stop disenfranchising people of color from voting through voter ID laws. And they are racist. Don't at me on this. Federal courts will disagree with you. Have you gotten a response from those corporations yet? Like what what are are the next steps in terms of how this moves forward? Okay, so the bill passed in the Senate, of course, like we knew it would. Um, but we wanted to raise awareness about it. Now it moves onto the ballot in November. So okay. North Carolina voters are going to vote whether they want to amend the state constitution to allow voter ID laws. We're going to have to now wage another campaign to alert the North Carolina public that these laws are not built around creating free and fair and safe elections. Mm-hmm. They're built around disenfranchising people of color from voting. Because here's the thing, after Barack Obama got elected and, the, and North in North Carolina and lots of other state legislators saw the, the voting block of black and brown people who showed up in astronomical numbers for that president to vote, that's when you see this wave of, of voter suppression that began mm. to happen. Mm. So they're not doing this, to, again, for safe and free, fair elections. They're doing yeah. this to stop the people from voicing their political uh, opinions through voting. So go to rejectracism.org. What you can do is we have a toolkit available for, I've been dropping off petitions to local Amazon, uh, excuse me, local Whole Foods stores and Apple stores, um, a signed petition, letting them know about the Reject Racism campaign and telling them to talk to their corporate headquarters. Mm -hmm. So we just need people filling out forms. I mean, it's so silly, guys. It feels silly. It feels ineffective. It feels like bothersome. It feels too much. But the truth is, Stuff like that matters. Absolutely. If if 150 yeah. people start going to the same Apple and Amazon store, you know, right. and 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 Whole Foods store, and letting them know, they're going to call the corporate offices. Yeah, sure. They sure. will because they're like, yeah, we're getting this influx of of people saying this. 
Um, and the petition, again, that was that was when you could go to rejectracism.org and find the petition yeah. uh, to sign it as well, too. But, um, yeah, we're going to continue this fight. I was on, I've been doing a lot of media press for this, and I believe in it. And mm. um, we're going to keep pressing this issue because it's a fundamental right for every citizen, eligible citizen, to vote. And uh, no one should be suppressing it or making it difficult for them to vote. And yeah. actually, in our history, that's always because of racism, not because yeah. of protecting the integrity of the election. Well, I just, I want to add that for people who listen to Son of a Preacher Man, anybody watching right now, um, I, I unequivocally uh, support this movement. I believe in it. I want to encourage you to get involved. I would encourage you that right now, without hesitation, to go to the website one more time. Website. Rejectracism.org. Yeah. So, like, p- please jump in. And for me, as a, as a kingdom person, I think it's important. So, for those of you people of faith... Cannot encourage you enough. I do want to ask this, though, um, you know, with really, to me, the, the biggest action step, of course, I want people to jump in and get engaged. But I'm also aware that there are probably a lot of folks for whom, because, you know, and I've, I've been having this conversation because I do mm-hmm. care about this and I'm supporting what you're doing. I've been having this conversation with people that I love. I know there are a lot of people who are hearing all of this about voter suppression for the for the very first time. Absolutely. So for people who want further resources, whether it be documentaries, books, whatever, where would you steer people mm. who just want to learn more about the whole context and backdrop of all this? Yeah. Um, I mean, if you go to the petition, there's links at the bottom that have articles uh, referencing and also the federal court ruling. It's 83 pages. If you want to read the whole thing, you can read it for yourself. Mm. Some people are like, I don't trust the media. I don't trust the liberal media, which is whatever. But read the federal court ruling. You don't have to read the New York Times. But New York Times has done lots of articles about this Washington Post. Democracy Now! North Carolina, or Democracy North Carolina, uh, follow them on Twitter. You can find info that's consistent and daily on what's going on. Color of Change as well. Both of those are Instagram and Twitter handles. Um, also, I would say book-wise, t- to connect the history of all of this, um, uh, I would talk about New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, which yeah. is kind of, you know, a real uh, testament of the history of mass incarceration. But also, uh, Black uh, rights um, as well. ta Coates, We Were Eight Years in Power. Mm. He talks about the history and the social context of uh, voting rights in America. There's tons of literature and books around it. Michael Eric Dyson. and uh, I mean, there's so many like resources out there uh, to do it. But just Google voter suppression, North Carolina or Texas, and, and, and really begin to dive into it and really begin to read. You'll find readily so much information available about the history. But like I said, if you're too lazy to do all that, just go to the uh, rejectracism.org and you'll find resources links uh, in the petition that give you, again, the federal court ruling, read all 83 pages. It'll startle you in terms of Mm -hmm. what they discovered Mm -hmm. and what was happening, racial intent and discrimination. So again, this isn't even up for grabs. You can't even argue with me about whether this was racist or not. And that's actually been really sad to enter into this conversation where people even when I tell them, hey, federal courts ruled on this, they proved right. it without a shadow of a doubt right. that this was happening and going on, not just an impact, but also an intent, yes. which is hard to prove. People still refuse to believe it, yeah. oftentimes. They yeah. don't. They, they want to give the benefit of the doubt. They want to not believe that their government can be that racist mm-hmm. or that the, that government would do anything um, because, you know, for lots of different reasons. There's lots of reasons why people, you know, are complicit in that. So I just encourage you to opt out of your echo chamber. Yeah. And really begin to study this. Also, the myth of voter fraud. Okay. Um, the the information is all out there. This isn't a partisan thing. This is purely um, uh, an issue related to people's constitutional rights to vote. Yeah. And again, we have a history in this country of denying Black and Brown people the right to vote, or making it difficult for them, more difficult for them to vote than other yeah. people. Yeah. Well, 
I believe you, and I believe in this. And, and you know, I hope that is a good word to say. I'm so I'm so proud of you in this journey because uh-huh. I really feel like the journey you've been on. Even though I know this is your intent, you're not trying to be some mythic figure, but I do feel like you know, it's a representative journey, and and you're carrying a lot of people with you. I think a lot of folks are feeling a sense of permission hmm. to. To, to go on this path because of the the way that you're carving out the trail. So just thank you for your courage in that and your voice. And man, it's, it's so mad. I, I just think, you know, the sons and daughters will prophesy. And I feel like, you know, you you are prophesying in our time. I, I recognize the work of the, and the anointing of the Holy Spirit on that. And I'm just so grateful, man. It's a, it's a great witness to the world and you're a gift to me and to all of us. So thank you. Love you, William. Love you guys. Love you, Jonathan. Thanks for hanging out, and uh, thanks for joining us. All the way in St. Joseph, Missouri, at the Holiday Inn Express, you guys. Don't tell them where we're at. I don't want them to come find me today. Oh, that's right. We should have waited until we were gone to get here. (laughs) Groupies. William, groupies do exist, by the way. They could be in the bushes now. Love y'all. Good night. Thank you for listening today. For more, go to jonathanmartinwords.com and follow him on Twitter and Instagram. To support this podcast, go to patreon.com slash sonofapreacherman and help us keep this podcast going. Remember, no matter who you are or where you come from, we hope this podcast can help you come to find the love that calls you by your true name. God bless.